Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, Episode 40, for April 4, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. As hopes for a negotiated settlement between Israelis and Palestinians dim even further, and as Palestinian domestic politics spiral even further into disarray, one bright spot remains the growing effectiveness and professionalism of the Palestinian Authority's security services. With 30,000 men under arms, PA security forces provide law and order in much of the West Bank and even cooperate with their Israeli peers to prevent bloodshed. The Palestinians don't do this as a favor, not to Israel, not to the Americans, not to the Europeans. The Palestinians view all this, especially security coordination, as a means to an end. The end being the end of the occupation and statehood. That was Institute Adjunct Fellow Neri Zilber speaking at a March 28 event on the evolution of the Palestinian security forces. Neri spoke in Washington alongside Institute Senior Fellow Khreith Dolomari. They co-authored a new Institute study of PA security services titled State with No Army, Army with No State, Evolution of the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, 1994-2018. Without any clear path toward Palestinian statehood, how long can the PA security services retain their morale and competence? Even if individual PA security officers remain willing and able to do their duty, what happens if their political masters have a change of heart on cooperation with Israel? And how did the once notoriously corrupt and lawless PA security services become the comparatively professional and effective forces they are today? We'll hear from Neri Zilber and Khreith Alamari about the past, present, and future of Palestinian Authority security forces. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Neri Zilber. He's a widely published journalist and analyst on Middle East politics and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute. What I'd like to do with the time that I have is kind of lay out uh, a bit of the why um, and a bit of the how uh, behind the study, behind the report, the what in terms of the main points of what the PA security forces are and what they do, uh, and then kind of take it a little bit forward-looking, uh, the where, where we might be headed in terms of Israeli and Palestinian uh, security ties. So to start off with the why, it might not come as a surprise to this esteemed crowd, um, but when you're out to dinner or out socially and people ask you kind of what are you working on and you tell them you're writing a 100-page study on uh, one Palestinian institution going back now 24 years, you get a strange look. You get a strange look. Um, usually kind of the eyes glaze over. Uh, you get a nod. Uh, the topic sometimes moves on very quickly, but you oftentimes get a different response and a different question, uh, which is the Palestinians have a security force? And that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. If you take security in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a kind of fundamental prerequisite, uh, the sin qua non, for everything else, whether it's economic progress, diplomatic progress, even the mere idea of, of peace, then it's surprising really how much is not known about security. Uh, neither about the passive, the PA security forces as an institution, um, what it is, what it does, um, leadership, even very kind of basic information, but also neither about Israeli-Palestinian security coordination. It's name-checked, it's mentioned, but really how it works, why it works, isn't really well understood. Um, and by the way, not only in the public sphere or out socially, uh, but even oftentimes in the policy debate. So really we set out to remedy this very real knowledge gap. 
So that's number one in terms of why. I think it's always, it was also important for us uh, in terms of why to kind of provide not just a snapshot of the current moment um, and really the current moment of the passive, uh, but really to emphasize the evolution of the Palestinian Authority security forces. Um, it's an evolution from 1994 until the present. I don't think we can really understand the reality on the ground today. And as David mentioned, this kind of crown jewel, if we don't really understand what's gone on before and really how we've gotten to this point. So this study is maybe a bit different than other studies on this topic in the sense that it really tells a story. It tells a story of kind of the rise and the creation and then the fall of this institution uh, and also over the past decade, the reconstitution, the revival of the passive. Now we corresponded to three different time periods. You can read it in the executive summary in the table of contents. Uh, but really the three different time periods are 1994 to 2000 under Arafat, uh, 2000 to 2007, uh, second intifada uh, up to the fall of Gaza, uh, and then really the past decade, which we termed uh, reconstitution and professionalization. Uh, there's also a fourth chapter, which Leith will delve into a bit more deeply, which is kind of forward-looking um, really the various policy dilemmas that we all face um, uh, on this issue and kind of Israeli-Palestinian topic writ large. Uh, so that's just a bit about the why. Uh, the how, I'll just mention, um, obviously it's a, it's a major study for the Washington Institute, so uh, it's based on extensive uh, research and, and the literature available on the subject, but also really because it's a Washington Institute study, uh, it's also based on very extensive field research, interviews. From my count, there are probably over 40 interviews with various officials and various actors on the ground, um, whether it's refugee camp uh, activists in Balata and Nablus, uh, to former Fatah gunmen, to Hamas officials, uh, to PA security force cadets, all the way up to security chiefs, uh, former and present uh, Israeli security officials, um, as well as, I should mention, U.S. government officials uh, and European officials. So really kind of an extensive field research component to it with the goal being to kind of provide this ground level, realistic, and we hope dispassionate uh, assessment of the situation. So that's a bit about uh, the why and the how. Now for the what. Uh, what is the situation? Uh, what were all these officials actually saying? Uh, I'll spare you the suspense and I'll get to the bottom line first. The passive today, uh, and really in recent years, going back a decade now, but really today, are more cohesive, effective, and professional as a security force than they've ever been, than they've ever been. Um, now, admittedly, only in the West Bank, uh, and Gaza is a separate issue, which we can get into in the Q&A, but they do operate a lot more effectively these days in the West Bank. I will say you can't kind of overstate uh, their operational capabilities, or you shouldn't at least. You know, it's not the 101st uh, Airborne. Um, it's not even the Golani Brigade, with due respect to the Golani Brigade. Uh, but the situation really is night and day different than what came before. And I think that's important to emphasize right off the bat. Uh, and you hear this not only from the people you expect uh, to be saying this, uh, but even from critics, uh, whether Israeli or even uh, Palestinian, um, they'll concede this point, that as a security force, the passive are a lot more effective than they've ever been. So what is the passive? What are they? Um, and what do they do? And how is it different than what's come before? Uh, so very quickly, um, this might be kind of a given for this audience, but um, when we talk about the passive, we're really talking about the security services of the Palestinian Authority, um, which are eight in number today, 
uh, almost 30,000 men under arms responsible for upholding law and order in those areas of the West Bank controlled by the PA. So that's important also to emphasize uh, where they operate and where they, where they don't. Uh, but the aid services, as um, most of you probably know, I'll just rattle them off, uh, National Security Force, Civil Police, Presidential Guard, uh, you have a District Coordination Office, Military Intelligence, Preventive Security, General Intelligence, and Civil Defense. Um, and if you download the report, uh, it's all in there, their various functions and what they do, so I'll spare you that. Uh, now, eight might sound like a lot uh, right now, but it's really a far cry from what you had under Arafat. Again, night and day. By 2000, by the year 2000, Arafat had some 12 different services operating. At another point after that, it was 15. Another count right after that might have been 17. Now, for Arafat, there might have been a logic politically for him to kind of maintain this, this system, um, with him standing at the head of the system and everyone beholden to him, uh, his children, as he called the security chiefs. But as a state-building and institution-building strategy, as we all know, um, this would prove to be disastrous, clearly impacting the cohesion, the professionalism, uh, as well as the effectiveness of the services. Turns out that running a proto-state like a corner deli um, wasn't a recipe for uh, great success. So this is what the passive actually do, you know, as far as what, what they, how they've evolved from Arafat. So as far as operational functions, we divided it into three main planks as far as what they do today. Uh, number one, law and order, um, really taking the armed gunmen and the militias off the streets. And this is coming out of the Second Intifada, um, also targeting, I should add, Fatah Tanzim and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, so not just, uh, you know, even, even politically affiliated uh, militias and gunmen off the streets, um, you know, kind of upholding this elusive idea uh, of one authority, one law, and one gun. Now, we should add that uh, law and order means law and order. Um, so really providing security for for the people. Um, it's nice to kind of oftentimes emphasize the security coordination component vis-a-vis -vis Israel, um, but there really is an internal component to it as well that we shouldn't overlook. Um, so that's number one, law and order. Number two, uh, anti-Hamas campaign. Uh, really, especially after the double game that Arafat liked to play in the 1990s, and kind of this lack of a monopoly on the means of violence, uh, which we saw culminate really uh, with the fall of Gaza in 2007. So that's number two. And then number three is security coordination with Israel. Again, night and day different today than what it was under Arafat. Um, and as David mentioned, really a, a positive story, uh, arguably the most positive story. You know, they've, they've re reasserted law and order in the West Bank. And as anyone that uh, has traveled recently in the West Bank can attest, you know, it's very different than what it was even, even you know, a few years ago. Now, again, shouldn't overstate the fact. Uh, you still have pockets of uh, disaffection, criminality, and uh, opposition, uh, especially in certain kind of refugee camps and inner cities. Uh, in recent years, you've had trouble in Nablus and uh, Balata and the, and the old city. Uh, Jamal Tarawi and his crowd. Um, but again, these are pockets and not what you had, especially in the Second Intifada, armed militias roaming the streets. Law and order. Now, Hamas capabilities, you know, this can be debated um, from the Israeli officials that I spoke to. Hamas capabilities in the West Bank today are nowhere near what they used to be. Nowhere near what they used to be. Um, there's a serious and ongoing crackdown 
uh, militarily, politically, financially, institutionally, not just by Israel, but also by the PA. And these two things, law and order and Hamas, are related. Um, I had an interview at one point with uh, Akram Rajoub, who's the uh, governor of Nablus and a former intel chief uh, himself. And he readily admitted that before 2007, the PA turned a blind eye to these, as he called it, political weapons. Not only the political weapons on the part of Hamas, but also political weapons on the part of the Fatah militias. They've been remedying the situation uh, and this kind of what was really previously a lax approach. Um, so those two components, law and order and, uh, and Hamas campaign, are crucial. Um, but then third, you have uh, security coordination with Israel. I would argue that this report really lays out uh, for the first time anywhere what security coordination actually is, you know, how it works, what it does. Uh, so we decided to kind of break it down into its various components, which there are five. Uh, and for the time being, we'll leave out the six, which is uh, the kind of emergency response, civil defense. Um, you know, uh, last couple of years, you've had major fires in Israel. Uh, so you've had PA civil defense teams go out and help battle these blazes uh, alongside their Israeli counterparts. Um, but the five real kind of security component uh, operationally of the of the security coordination are number one, I think the most basic one, which says a lot, uh, dialogue. Dialogue and intelligence sharing. Um, really from the senior security chiefs, the strategic level, um, down to kind of the districts and the regional brigades, uh, all the way down in some cases to the kind of battalion uh, and the more operational and tactical level. To discuss, as one PA security chief told me, uh, the shared security interests and the shared security hazards that impact the stable security situation on both sides. So really, Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs, to a remarkable degree, see things the same way in terms of security. Uh, number two, and stemming from this, obviously the main, the main threat to both, uh, counterterrorism, by which we mean kind of going after Hamas, going after Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad, with, by the way, I should mention, intel flowing both ways. Uh, intel flows both ways, um, from Israel to the PA and also from the PA to Israel. Since the fall of 2015, you've had this kind of uh, uh, eruption of lone wolf Palestinian attackers, predominantly young Palestinians, um, what's termed the Haba, the eruption. The PA security forces, as similar to what Israel does today, um, but the PA security forces also monitor social media. They also monitor schools. Um, they bring in students uh, for cautionary talks, um, also something that's kind of flown under the radar, but they also operate uh, on, that, on, that, uh, on that plane since really the fall of 2015. And then finally, in terms of counterterror, uh, you have the PA through a mix of uh, what I like to call kind of coercion uh, as well as persuasion. Um, they've kept the Fatah Tanzim in the various refugee camps in check. Um, not a given, and also not a given uh, because you oftentimes hear threats from the Fatah Tanzim. Um, they really haven't come out and, and joined uh, the fray uh, over the past decade, and that's also something uh, that's not a given. Uh, number three is in terms of security coordination, uh, deconfliction. Deconfliction when the IDF uh, conducts raids into Palestinian cities, what we term Area A. Um, now, obviously, Israel still maintains freedom of operation to conduct arrests um, in Palestinian cities, 
But this is often, not, not always, but often done uh, via prior coordination with the PA security forces. So as Bogi Alon, who was also a, a visiting fellow here at one point, uh, said back in 2015, uh, once we, Israel, needed an entire division to go into Jenin, uh, the other day we did it with a small force. This is in 2015. And a good example of that was just uh, the other week, um, the IDF had a 15-hour operation in the Janine refugee camp. You know, there were some riots and demonstrations, but they were in there operating and doing what they felt they needed to do for 15 hours without any kind of opposition from the PA security forces. Number four, arguably very important recently, number four is safe return of Israeli civilians um, that have strayed, whether uh, by accident or for uh, other reasons, into Palestinian-controlled areas of the West Bank. In 2017, there were over 500 Israelis who strayed, who were returned safely by the PA security forces. 500. Um, in 2016, the number was over 400. I think, I mean, this crowd probably uh, noticed a few weeks ago, or last month now, in Janine, two IDF soldiers in uniform, uh, in a clearly marked IDF jeep, thought it would be a good idea to take a shortcut through downtown Janine, uh, in the middle of the day on a Monday. Uh, now, obviously, uh, they were noticed, and a crowd, uh, really a mob, engulfed the Jeep, throwing stones and other pieces of uh, furniture that uh, came to hand. The PA security forces, primarily the police initially and then others uh, on the scene, held the protesters at bay. Um, at one point, you had a uh, Palestinian policeman, and you can see this very clearly in the footage, took out his gun and fired in the air, to keep the to keep the mob at bay, and they safely extricated these two IDF soldiers um, out of what could have been a very bad situation. Now you compare this uh, Janine incident last month to what we all remember happened uh, in Ramallah in the fall of 2000 um, with the lynching of two IDF reservists, and really where one isolated incident can spiral not not just into a strategic event but really into a into a psychologically scarring event. So that's the safe return of Israeli civilians by the passive. Um, finally, number five, riot control, um, which to my mind is arguably the, the most important component for stability in the West Bank. The PA, whether by omission or, or, co or commission, including pa uh, passive and active measures, um, they work to contain large-scale demonstrations from coalescing and escalating and really reaching the seam zones between Palestinian and Israeli control in the West Bank, the highways, uh, the checkpoints, the settlements. The passive uh, have riot control units, which they deploy, but I think more importantly, um, and this relates to something that David said, uh, looking ahead, more importantly, the PA hasn't mobilized its people to take to the streets. Um, not during the various Gaza campaigns, whether in 2008 and 9, 2012, 2014, um, except for one incident in 2014 uh, at Kalandia, not during the Haba, the eruption of violence in 2015 and 2016, um, not even after Trump's recognition of Jerusalem in December. And this also, I don't think, should be taken as a given. So again, to sum up, very different than what uh, came before under Arafat. And to my mind, this is clearly signifies a major policy shift from the top of the PA or as one Palestinian security chief told me, we get clear orders from the president. They get clear orders from the president, and by the way, they follow those orders. And they reach all the way down to the district and the battalion levels. 
you know, a lot can and should be said about Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, but Arafat, to my mind, would have escalated at least half a dozen times by now. And we also can't lose sight of that. Abu Mazen himself gave an interview uh, to Israeli television, I think last year at some point, um, where he said, you know, I hold on to security cooperation uh, because if we give up on it, there will be chaos here. And a blood-drenched intifada will break out. Now again, as David mentioned, the Palestinians don't do this as a favor. Not to Israel, not to the Americans, not to the Europeans. The Palestinians view all this, especially security coordination, as a means to an end. The end being the end of the occupation and statehood. That's what you hear, that's what they say, they state this publicly, um, so we shouldn't lose sight of that either. So that's the what. The where, where are we headed? Are the gains of this past decade sustainable? Is the passive itself as an institution, its resilience, is it sustainable in the face of what uh, we can all agree isn't a great political moment? So we obviously posit this question in the report. Raith will get into it in more detail. But I'll just put it bluntly, the passive don't operate in a vacuum. Um, they're impacted by everything that goes on around them, uh, especially politically. I don't quite know what that policeman in Janine, who took out his gun and fired in the air, told his family and friends when he got home that night. I don't know how he kind of defended the fact that he was protecting two IDF soldiers. This, I think, kind of gives an answer as to why oftentimes not so much is known about either uh, security coordination or the passive itself. It's very hard for them to defend it. It's very hard for them to defend it publicly, especially absent a credible political horizon. Um, you hear various slurs. I heard this uh, in various interviews, by the way, not just from Hamas. They're called sub subcontractors for the occupation. They're called dogs of the Jews, uh, a Palestinian blackwater. So we should also keep that in mind. On the Israeli side, by the way, they're very aware of this tension. They're very aware of this tension. Um, the security professionals, uh, this is really the reason why they don't like to talk about it uh, too openly. And when you ask them uh, about it, oftentimes you get a very kind of laconic response. Yes, coordination exists, it's ongoing, but oftentimes not more than that unless you kind of know who, uh, who to talk to. But I will say that the IDF and the Shin Bet um, understand the value of the passive and, and the coordination mechanism. They understand the need to bolster the passive, both operationally as well as politically. Um, they understand the need to give them more, more authority, more capability. Uh, and what you see oftentimes is this kind of running up against the Israeli rights, uh, let's say anathema feeling towards ceding more, more ground, or at least be seen as ceding more ground to the Palestinians, more ground and more land. Um, and you oftentimes see leaks, calculated targeted leaks, to scuttle certain plans that have been, that have been in the works. Um, again, that's also in the report. For what it's worth, I will say that on the Israeli side, the most illuminating kind of thing I heard um, throughout the field research was uh, from one IDF battalion commander outside Bethlehem in Gush Etzion. So we're kind of driving around there. It's a very foggy and cold January morning. Um, and I asked him about the, about the passive, about his Palestinian counterparts. Um, and what he told me, and this is a quote, uh, I don't feel there isn't someone to trust on the other side. And this is a guy, uh, an IDF officer, who, who experienced the Second Intifada himself. He, he, he remembers it, he understands it, but this is his assessment, this is his feeling today. For the Palestinians that you talk to, um, and when you pitch them on the idea of kind of going on the record and, and speaking more openly about, about this issue, uh, 
you have to explain to them that, at least in my mind, they, they kind of get the worst of both worlds. Um, number one, because uh, their public knows that coordination is actually ongoing. They literally see IDF forces entering their cities on a nightly or weekly basis. So the public isn't stupid. It knows it's going on. Um, but they lose a second time um, because the PA and the Palestinians don't often take credit, or at least they're not given credit um, internationally and also oftentimes in this town for what they're actually doing. Right? So they lose both ways, both in terms of their own public and in terms of the overall political uh, system and climate. It was very interesting to me. I'm sure he was well briefed, but it was interesting uh, to me to, to hear and see um, the one person who actually did give them credit which was President Trump last May. Abu Mazen was visiting the White House. There was a joint uh, press statement. And the president came out and said this publicly. He said, we must continue to build our partnership with the PA security forces to counter and defeat terrorism. Um, I also applaud the PA's continued security coordination with Israel. They get along unbelievably well. I was actually very impressed and somewhat surprised at how well they get along. They work together beautifully. Beautifully. So that's the president, and he's not wrong. He's not wrong. He might have uh, shifted his thinking uh, in more recent times, but I think he got it spot on uh, last May. Um, I'll just conclude by saying that the current moment, as David mentioned, is extremely worrying uh, to me as well, for three reasons. Um, number one, I think the notion that the U.S. can cut funding, as you're hearing now, uh, both to the PA and the Palestinian territories, um, but kind of insulating the passive and insulating the security dimension um, from everything else, and this is what you hear from U.S. government officials, um, is not credible. I don't think you can insulate security from everything else, um, from the wider system. Uh, to think that the passive can kind of continue going on with their jobs while other civil servants aren't getting paid is wishful thinking. That's also in the report. Number two, uh, and I think more than that, uh, the impasse. Um, over Jerusalem and the kind of clear anger that you're seeing uh, emanating from the Palestinian side uh, raises at least the prospect of a serious shift in policy uh, by Ramallah. And by Ramallah, uh, we mean Abu Mazen. You know, Abu Mazen, uh, to my mind, has held the line for the past decades, you know, especially since he obviously became president. Uh, but right now, it doesn't look like he has many, very many good options, um, not in terms of the peace process, not in terms of the Netanyahu government, um, not in terms of really the collapsed kind of reconciliation that we've seen with Hamas. One outlet, one kind of possible solution to his mind might be mass demonstrations. Mass demonstrations in the West Bank. Um, now, obviously very risky, but there is a certain logic to it, and it's a concern. Um, and we'll probably get a good sense of where things are headed, both this coming Friday, and as David mentioned, this, uh, this brewing perfect storm in May with the Jerusalem embassy move, uh, with the Israel's 70th Independence Day celebration, uh, Nakba Day, the start of Ramadan. I, I believe it'll be a severe test for the passive. And then three, and finally, going back to kind of what this, this report was, was meant to do, uh, what we hope it will do, it really endeavored to kind of highlight the real progress, and I, I will say that, progress, um, in Israeli-Palestinian relations, um, that has been made, has been made on the ground over the past decade, um, and really the positive evolution of the passive. Now, in retrospect, we can look back at this period 
uh, you know, as a fleeting period, as maybe an aberration period where kind of the two-state solution truly died, or maybe we'll look back at this period as something hopefully more positive, where something was built, or at the very least was protected from, you know, what really is a unfavorable political moment at the moment. Um, I think this is a decision that is, it's a decision for President Trump, I think it's a decision for Prime Minister Netanyahu, but I think above all it'll be a decision for, uh, for Abu Mazen. So we'll see what happens. Thank you. That was Neri Zilber. Next, we'll hear from Khaith Alomari, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. Khaith is the former executive director of the American Task Force on Palestine. He previously served in various positions within the Palestinian Authority, including advisor to the negotiating team during the 1999-2001 permanent status talks. If I may also start on a personal note, and I will start by thanking Neri. I mean, it was his idea to do the report. He did most of the heavy lifting. And maybe that's why he got to do the happy part of this uh, presentation, <laughs> uh, talking about the uh, development, the success of the Palestinian security forces. And it is actually a happy story. I mean, I remember very much when uh, a meeting with Salam Fayyad, when he first became prime minister, and he said to me and others who were in the room, uh, I'm going to focus on building the security forces first and foremost. And, you know, I'm a polite person to not laugh at his face, but uh, in the back of my mind was, good luck with this one. Um, it was almost the symbol of the dysfunction in the Palestinian system and the success that we saw because of Fayyad's efforts, Abbas's support, and of course, American, Jordanian, and other support is nothing short of remarkable. That said, my job now is not to talk about the happy story. My job is to talk about the future. And the future in Middle Eastern term is always about challenges. So what are the challenges facing us moving forward in this uh, issue? And there are three baskets of issues that I would like to focus on. One that Neri touched on, the peace process and the relation of the security forces with the peace process. Two, the relation of the security forces to the wider Palestinian internal domestic uh, political dynamics. And finally, some specific issues that relate to security sector uh, governance and uh, things that we will face in the future. And of course, this is the Washington Institute. We're in Washington. At the end of the day, what does this mean to, uh, for the United States? What it means for U.S. policy? So when it comes to the peace process and the issue of dealing with the peace process stagnation, uh, Neri mentioned that this is something that every U.S. security coordinator has flagged. I remember Keith Dayton actually speaking at the Washington Institute, the second security co U.S. security coordinator, saying that if these, these forces are being trained, indoctrinated by the fact that they are state builders, this is a process of ultimately reaching a Palestinian state. Well, the peace process right now is in very bad shape. No one believes that a Palestinian state is going to come anytime uh, soon. So how long can they continue doing their job? Now, they have been extremely resilient so far. And in the face of many setbacks, as Neri mentioned, they have been effective. Yet, I mean, or so much so that we've, become, uh, we've gotten to take it for granted. These guys will do their job no matter what. I don't think we can take it for granted. And last July... In the midst of the tensions that followed the Israeli installment of uh, uh, metal detectors in front of the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, we saw for the first time a, a breakdown of the security coordination and the security cooperation. This is something to pay, keep, keep it, or pay attention to because there will be moments of political stress 
uh, based on the failure of the two, of the of diplomacy that might push the Palestinians into a level where or into a point where security coordination might become politically unviable. Success in the peace process is obviously above the pay grade of the uh, security forces, etc. It's a much bigger uh, issue. Yet there are still, I think, issues that uh, both the Palestinians and Israelis can do to at least give some support and some hope for these, or at least minimize the damage to these forces. And specifically on the Palestinian side, I believe that uh, the PA should stop threatening to sever security coordination as a pressure point against Israel, because this kind of rhetoric while they don't, uh, generally speaking, Abu Mazen doesn't want to uh, implement it, in reality, the more you talk about it, the more that you delegitimize your own security forces, demoralize your troops, and give credence to the uh, narrative that comes from Hamas and others that presents them as a subcontractor sub uh, sub for the occupation. From the Israeli point, and this is a point that uh, Niri mentioned, we often see a situation where the IDF, Shimbet folks, uh, suggest certain measures on the ground that are intended to show the Palestinians that security coordination comes with a concrete dividend. These kinds of measures are often supported by the Minister of Defense, the Prime Minister, but they languish and they die when they get into the messy uh, scene of Israeli politics and Israeli cabinet politics. And there's a need to insulate issues that relate to the security coordination from political uh, wranglings within the Israeli system. The second a basket of uh, challenges relates to the domestic Palestinian uh, political dynamic. And in that regard, uh, in general, we've been seeing in recent years the Palestinian political system becoming more authoritarian, and Abbas has used these security forces to implement this authoritarianism. We've seen Abbas clamp down on his political opponents within Fatah and outside Fatah, and these forces have been used as the tool for this uh, clamp down. Now, I must point out that this is very different in many ways from the 1990s, Arafat's time, where at those times the security forces were not simply a tool, but they were a player. People like uh, leaders of security forces played their own political games. Today they're doing it as in the instruction of the president. Um, at the end of the day, though, they are the visible aspect of uh, oppression, suppression, and therefore their legitimacy among their own publics uh, ends up being uh, eroded. So this is an issue that we actually have to look at in the wider context of where Palestinian politics uh, are moving. And this kind of uh, test will actually become more most obvious when it comes to the one, if you wish, the main topic that today is in uh, uh, among Palest uh, Palestinian political conversation, which is the issue of succession. What happens after Abbas? And here we have three scenarios. The ideal though not very likely scenario, is they do, they stay in their barracks and they support the political process. However the political process works out, their job is to support it. Ideal, that, but maybe too ideal uh, for reality. The second, and in my mind, most likely, most likely scenario is they become kingmakers. Don't try to become uh, the rulers themselves, but support certain uh, actors. And here there's a risk of fragmentation because some of these forces are more are closer or more closely affiliated with this actor or that actor. So there is a risk here. A less likely scenario, but uh, a worst case scenario, is if they become contenders. If you see a breakdown of the uh, succession process, if you see a protracted succession process, you might see some of these security chiefs uh, having their own ambitions and access, since they have access to guns, uh, resources, 
you might end up with uh, a situation where we have a bloody secu uh, succession uh, process. And this, again, begs the uh, or uh, emphasizes the need for us to start focusing on ensuring that succession happens in a smooth or at least rational, um, non-destabilizing uh, way. The final aspect, final challenge that they face uh, relates to the larger de-institutionalization process that we have seen taking place in the PA since the ouster of Salam Fayyad as Prime Minister. Many of the reforms that were put in place by Prime Minister Fayyad have been eroded. In this particular case, uh, the major uh, manifestation of this is how the security forces, which under the Palestinian constitution and under the uh, international roadmap were supposed to be divided between the president and the cabinet, have reverted back to the control of the president. Ironically, these reforms of dividing the security forces were put in place specifically to undermine Arafat's uh, monopoly on the security forces and to empower, at that time, Prime Minister Mahmoud Abbas. He becomes president and he reverses this kind of uh, uh, reform. This is problematic uh, in many ways, but specifically when it comes to my third point, which is the issue of governance of the Palestinian security sector. The security sector, uh, Palestinian security sector faces many of the challenge or many challenges when it comes to the question of security sector reform. Some of them are almost natural. For example, uh, we have a very, um, how shall I say it, non-coherent, non-cohesive legal uh, framework that uh, governs them. There are gaps, there are overlaps, there are contradictions. This is uh, part of, you know, fixing this would be part of fixing ultimately the Palestinian uh, uh, legal system writ large. Um, we see this also in the sense that while a lot of um, emphasis have been put on training, equipping, professionalizing the security forces, if you want to look at any security sector reform, the forces are only the tip of a spear. And unless the rest of the spear is also strong, the back room, the back operation is strong, these forces will remain limited. And what we see in that, uh, in that uh, institutional framework, it's still weak. There are very weak coordination mechanisms, very weak uh, human resources uh, mechanisms, very weak uh, ability of uh, a central authority to deal with issues of supply, issues of recruitment, things uh, of the sort. Now, these kinds of uh, challenges do have, of course, technical fixes. And indeed, the American uh, uh, staffers of the U.S. security coordinator are very capable in terms of, in terms of these uh, um, technical fixes. However, however, these technical fixes are predicated on a very basic political decision, a political decision by the president of the Palestinian Authority to re-engage and to re-vitalize uh, uh, the issue of reform, to allow the devol devolution of power from the presidency to the cabinet to the minister of interior. And this is not a technical question. This is a political question that requires a degree of political pressure on the Palestinian president. Which brings me to the second part of my presentation, which is the question of what can the U.S. do? First of all, maybe to step back and to say that a lot of credit, tremendous credit, goes to the United States in uh, enabling, shepherding, empowering this process. I think the U.S. Security Coordinator, the Office of the U.S. Security Coordinator, established in 05 by Secretary uh, Condoleezza Rice, has done an invaluable uh, service. Without it, we will not be where we are uh, today. 
dedicated staff, professional staff, people who really believed in what they were doing. And the fact that it's governed and it's led by a three-star American general is key. Many of the uh, missions, especially the train equip aspect of the uh, mission, is one that arguably can be done by uh, a lower level uh, officer, a colonel or whatnot. However, a three-star is key in terms of getting the uh, trust, support, and leverage with the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's a sign of U.S. seriousness, and it enables this uh, American security leader to talk as a peer to his uh, counterpart in uh, Palestine and Israel. There are many issues with the USSC, things that can be uh, fixed, should be fixed, uh, technically on the margins, but by and large, it's been extremely effective. However, we also have to understand that uh, the effectiveness of the security coordinator is limited. This is a security individual, a security uh, official, not a political act actor, not a diplomatic actor. And as such, there are certain things that he should not do, he cannot do. And particularly, this comes to the issue of pushing the sides to take political decisions. Now, traditionally, and to me, you know, I always like to quote uh, a paragraph from Condoleezza Rice's uh, uh, memoirs on this issue. Ultimately, the security coordinator will hit a political uh, wall, a political uh, glass ceiling. And here, and uh, this is where uh, Rice was uh, quoting, uh, talking about uh, Keith Dayton. Keith would reach a point where he uh, reaches this uh, uh, deadline, this this uh, dead end, pick up the phone, call uh, the secretary. The secretary then, and I quote, will pick up the phone, fuss at the Israeli defense minister, at the Palestinian prime minister, and get things done. The U.S. security coordinator, without support from Washington, has very limited ability to push the sides to take these key um, uh, political decisions. It's not a non-existent uh, space. And in many ways, the experience of the last security coordinator, Frederick Rudesheim, shows that there's a lot that you can do with minimal support from Washington. But as we move to a new phase of uh, developing some of the uh, institutional aspects of, uh, the, secu of, uh, of the Palestinian security forces, some uh, of the wider structural aspects of uh, security sector reform, there needs to be engagement on a political level uh, from... Uh, from Washington. Which brings me to the last point, and sadly, unfortunately, I have to end on a negative uh, note. Because effectiveness of Washington relates very much to the ability of Washington to engage and to leverage uh, the Palestinians and, of course, uh, the Israelis. The breakdown of Palestinian-American relations in uh, recent months has really made it very difficult for us to engage. Our leverage doesn't exist because our engagement uh, doesn't exist. Security coordination continues. The security, U.S. security coordinator is on the ground talking to Palestinians, talking to the Israelis. But we are in, uh, unable right now to provide the uh, uh, political support needed for uh, his operations. And, of course, as Neri mentioned, uh, the threats to Palestinian uh, aid from Washington also presents a major challenge to the ability of the security coordinator to operate, as Neri rightly said, you cannot insulate uh, security aid from the rest of the aid. You cannot go to the Palestinians and say, we're not going to give you civilian aid, we're only going to give you security aid. It's very hard to see how the Palestinians will accept this. So we're in a moment where it's almost, it's, it's, uh, there is a degree of irony, I guess. Things are better than they have ever been in terms of the professionalism, 
in terms of the security coordination and cooperation, in terms of U.S.-Palestinian security relations with the U.S.S.C. and Palestinian security forces, yet we have a context that threatens, to my mind, to uh, destroy what has been so far probably, if not the only, then the most striking success of both the peace process, but also the most striking success of U.S. operation in that uh, field. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.